The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Week six or so of this series on taking spiritual inventory, the first four were on doing what the Bible says, evaluate yourself, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. So we did that exhaustively, and in the end, if you're a Christian, the wonderful promise is, If you're a Christian, you can know with certainty, even in this postmodern world, you can know with certainty, certitude, uh, that you're a Christian. On a scale of 1 to 10, you can say, yes, I am a 10 out of 10, confident that knowing if if I died today, I would go to be with Christ with respect to salvation. That is the guarantee of Scripture. That's the ministry, ultimately, of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. That's his job. And he is infinite, almighty, all-powerful God who does that very thing, is he uses the truth of God's promises and impressing that upon your conscience and your soul that you can have that certainty. And so then we transition from asking the question, am I saved, to continuing spiritual inventory, examining ourselves, to ask the simple question, well, now that I'm pretty confident that I'm a Christian, the next question is, am I growing? Am I growing? Am I progressing? Am I making headway? Am I maturing spiritually? That's the question that we're seeking to answer. We introduced it last week. We'll cover it today. Actually, we'll finish next week. Am I growing? How am I doing? Uh, Because we said once God saves you, regenerates you, makes you a new creation, uh, creation, all things become new. God puts his Holy Spirit inside the believer, so God guarantees that if you're a Christian, you will grow and mature. That's great news. That's a promise from God. But the reality is, is we have sin, the residual leftovers of sin in our life. And the Christian life is like uh, floating down a stream. Imagine a, just a beautiful shady stream up in the mountains and it's flowing so beautifully and it's going down the mountain and you're a piece of wood just floating along and you're going at a great, steady, comfortable pace. That's God's intent for you. That's Christian growth. But every once in a while, oh, there's a little whirlwind or a little rock in the way or something, and it pulls you over to the embankment, and then you get caught up in a little whatever it is on the side of the river, and you're not flowing down the river anymore. You got hung up. You got caught up. You got entangled in sin. That's what happened. That happens in the Christian life. And then somebody or somehow God's grace gets you unstuck from the side of the river, and then you're back out in the middle of the river again, floating down the river the way you should be, walking in the Spirit, living the Christian life. The problem is every single one of us gets hung up on the side of the river, and we get caught up by all kinds of stuff. Most of the time, it's our fault. And we get caught up, we get hung up. That's why we do biblical counseling. Biblical counseling is not for people who are doing okay. Biblical counseling is for those who are hung up on the side of the river and they need somebody to get the scissors and cut out the fishing line that got you stuck there or move the rocks or what the impediment in your way so that you can get free and going again. Biblical counseling isn't intended to hold your hand the rest of your life. It's to free you up to live the life God intended for you to do and empowered you to do through the Holy Spirit. So there's that reality and the impediment of sin. So we all get hung up. That's why we're asking this question. Let's stop, be objective, evaluate, look to the scriptures, look at our own life, ask others that know us, and ask the question, how am I doing with respect to sanctification? Am I growing? Am I maturing? And at what rate? 
So to lay the foundation, uh, we said last week, before we look to scripture of markers or priorities that should be ongoing in your Christian life on the positive side that say you need to be doing this and doing this and serving here and doing this because these are the keys to spiritual growth. Before we look at these positive things that you should be doing in obedience to God, we need to look at the impediments and roadblocks that get in the way. We've got to know the impediments, the inhibitors that upset, distort, or throw us off track, that keep us from growing and maturing, that keep us from going down the right path of Christian growth. So we introduced that last week. You need to know your enemy. Do you have any enemies? Don't answer that out loud. As a Christian, do you have any enemies? Hopefully your answer immediately is yes. Newsflash, you have a lot of enemies. If you're a Christian, you have a lot of enemies. Severe enemies. Evil, wicked enemies. If you're not aware of that, you need to be aware of that. But um, So the goal here today is part two. What are the impediments, the roadblocks in our way that undermine, inhibit, circumvent, truncate, get in the way of ongoing Christian maturity in a healthy manner? And there, uh, just a correction from last week, I said there were five I wanted to share with you. There's actually six. All you have to do is flip over the piece of paper, McManus, and see there's six, not five. Uh, but I had five originally, and at the 11th hour, I added a sixth one. So we've got uh, six roadblocks to growth. We covered the first one last week. We spent a lot of time on it because I said if I had to pick one out of the six that was the biggest roadblock or impediment to your spiritual growth as a Christian, it's number one. And those of you who weren't here last week, uh, number one roadblock in your life as a Christian to keep you from growing is indwelling sin. Indwelling sin. Sin you have living in you as a Christian. That you inherited not just at birth, but you inherited it actually at the point of conception. Psalm 51.5 is explicit about that. You became a sinner at the point of conception when you were conceived by God. So you're not a sinner because you commit acts of sin you're a sinner because you have a sin nature. And you commit acts of sin because you have a sin nature. You commit acts of sin because you're a sinner. You're not a sinner because you commit acts of sin. Those are two radically different understandings and approaches. So we talked about that last week. Those of you who were here last week, uh, can you raise your hand if you actually happened this week at one time to read? You read Romans 7, 14 through 25. Is there anybody here that actually read? Oh, good, a few. I expected nobody would raise their hand. That was a homework assignment. Uh, this passage is so important. It's, it's an autobiography that Paul wrote of himself at the height of his apostolic ministry. Think of that. Some would argue the greatest apostle, if not the greatest Christian in the history of the church. Most influential. Wrote 13 books in the New Testament. And here's Paul. Uh, he's a mature Christian now. He's uh, led by the Spirit of God. He's writing the book of Romans. He evaluates himself, and as probably one of the most mature Christians living in his day, he writes this autobiography about himself. He's very honest, and he just lays it out for all of us to see, Romans 7, 14 through 25. And this is what he says about himself in terms of his practical status before God regarding his battle of sin within. Paul is involved in a civil war of the mind and of the soul as a Christian. Sin has not been eradicated for him just because he got saved. Just because he got saved, he's not on easy street of the Christian life. The Christian life is not easy. You know it's an easy life is not being saved. It's when you become a Christian, that's when things get difficult. That's when you enter the war. And here's Paul being very honest. So Paul's writing an autobiography of himself, and 
by extension, this is an autobiography of every Christian who has ever lived since Paul wrote this. This is your, am I in the Bible? Yes, you are right here. Romans 7, 15 through 25, and it's ugly. It's real. There's hope in it. Very specific. It's the greatest, I said this last week, it is the greatest, most reliable, specific, uh, laser-sharp focused analysis and diagnosis of the inner workings of the human soul of anthropology ever written in human literature. Written by Paul, but actually inspired and ultimately written by the Spirit of God, allowing us to see what really goes on inside human beings. What's really our problem? It's right here. I'm going to just read uh, 15 through 25 as I have printed out, and then I'm going to go right next to point number two, because many of you were not here last week. But put yourself here, instead of Paul, be thinking of you. Is this true of you? Because if what I read here resonates with you, resonates with your soul, that's a good thing. Because that may be a good indicator that, yeah, I'm a believer, and I am sensitive to sin. And I don't have a seared conscience, and I'm sensitive to sin in my own life, and I hate it. The spiritual Christian's attitude towards sin and disobedience is, I hate it. I'm disgusted with it. I'm disgusted with myself when I do it. Let's follow along. Verse 15, the Apostle Paul said, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Wow. Verse 16, Now, if I do what I do not want, in other words, if I sin, even though I don't want to, at least I agree with the law, God's law, that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Very important phrase. Sin dwell, Sin lives in me. Does a Christian have a sin nature? Well, I can say this. Sin lives in you. Verse 18. For I know, not, I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is, in my flesh, in my unredeemed humanity. He doesn't mean body. It's your unredeemed humanity that includes your body. For I have the desire to do what is right. So I want to emphasize that point. That's why I put it in big, bold letters. He says, I have the desire to do what is right. Now, an unbeliever can't say that. Paul's already said in Romans, unbelievers hate God. They have a dark and blinded mind. It's distorted and perverted. It is obtuse. They're repressing the truth of God. They hate God. They want nothing to do with God. They hate his truth. They hate the Bible. They hate what Jesus said. They do not desire what is right. Truth. And that's why I highlight it. And Paul says, at least I have the desire to do what is right. If this is true of you, you have the desire for biblical truth. You have the desire to do what is right even though you do wrong things. That is a good thing. That's a good testimony. You probably belong to Christ. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And he, he talk, he's meaning perfectly all of the time, and that's true of every single one of us. There's resident power there through the Holy Spirit, true. But none of us is perfect. And we talked about last week, some Christians say there's perfection available in this life, and the answer is no, not practically. Don't have the ability on an ongoing basis to carry it out, verse 19. For I do not do, for I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Doesn't Paul sound frustrated here? He keeps repeating himself. This sounds like me thinking about me. Why did I do that? Why do I keep doing that? I know that's wrong. Verse 21. So I find it to be a law, so there's another spiritual law, that when I want to do right, 
evil lies close at hand. For I, as a Christian, delight in the law of God, in the inner man. But, verse 23, I see in my members, in my unredeemed humanity that acts out through my body, I see another law, waging war. This is an ongoing, present, inner war that is in the heart, soul, mind of every Christian. I see that in my members there's another law. It's a principle. It's ongoing. It will always be in this life. Waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. What do you have in you? Do you have a sin nature? Well, you don't want to say that. Well, you have the law of sin dwelling in you, as do I. Verse 24, Paul can only conclude one thing at an honest appraisal of himself, and that is, oh, wretched man that I am. Isn't that that famous song uh, about amazing grace? About a wretch like me? A wretch? It's right out of the Bible. Who will deliver me from this body of death? It's not who will save me. He's already been saved. That's not his question. Who will deliver me from this civil war that is internal, raging in my soul and in my mind, day after day, hour after hour? When will I be delivered of this? It's not when will I be saved. And there's an answer. Thanks be to God, it's Jesus Christ is the one that's going to deliver me. And that's chapter 8. It's awesome. And Paul says the answer is you're going to be delivered from this in the future when you get your resurrection body. The rest of your, your humanity that is not redeemed right now is going to be redeemed. Coupled with a perfect resurrection body forever. Reunited with your already saved soul. So you will be whole, a complete, redeemed human being, resurrected in glory for the first time ever and always. And then he concludes in verse 25 by saying, So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, the redeemed me, the regenerated me, but with my flesh, my unredeemed humanity that includes my body. It's not synonymous with the body, but it includes the body. It's also an unredeemed carryover that's also in my mind. That's where the body, the, the battle is. It's the battle of the mind. That's the battleground is the mind. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. So I just think it's healthy to maybe read that once a month. Sit down, quiet, and here, God, please remind me of what I'm really like. And then just read that and apply that to yourself. And last week I said it's humbling and it's encouraging at the same time. It's humbling because it brings you down to reality. This is really who you are. When people got nitpick at you and they say you got problems, it's like, yeah, you do. <laughs> yes, I do. And then there's hope there that I'm going to be delivered from this. And also there's progress that can be made in this life to counter this problem. So your biggest enemy, my biggest enemy, and impediment to ongoing sanctification and growth as a Christian is our indwelling sin. We can't escape it. So let's look at the other five impediments and roadblocks. Number two, uh, Roadblock number two are addictions and chronic or ingrained patterns of sinful behavior. Addic they're not the same thing, addictions and patterns of sinful behavior. They can overlap, though. Addictions and chronic ingrained patterns of sinful behavior. Do you have any addictions? Don't answer that out loud. Search your own mind and heart. Do you have any addictions, any sinful addictions? Do you have any sinful patterns of behavior? Not an easy question on the spot to think through. That's something you should meditate on. Very dangerous thing is to ask somebody that knows you well the same question about yourself. Do I have any sinful patterns of behavior, especially if you're married? Your spouse can probably come up with quite a list. 
But it's a, a good question we need to ask ourselves. Do we have any, addiction, any addictive behavior? Do we have any patterns of sinful behavior in our life? Uh, a sinful habit that we have created by practicing it and doing it over and over again? That's how you develop a habit. It's a chronic, chronic habit. Uh, it's a vice in your life. Do you have any vices in your life? These are ongoing patterns of behavior of sin that we keep doing over and over again. You may have one vice, sinful vice in your life that keeps recurring, or maybe you have several. I, I actually have a, I know a pastor, and his saying that he would say frequently is, well, we all have vices, and every Christian is allowed to keep one vice. He'd say it all the time, he was, and he was serious. You can, you're allowed to keep one vice. Well, that's bad advice. <laughs> you are not allowed to keep any vices. That's completely contrary to the Bible. I just would was shocked every time he said that. Somebody like that shouldn't be preaching to people. Sinful habit. Uh, do you have an unbridled lust? Do you struggle with lust? I remember asking a friend of mine, a saved friend, early in my Christian life, about lust, and he, uh, he said he didn't struggle with lust. Uh, yeah, I literally said, I've overcome and I've conquered lust. Liar! Anyway. <laughs> Because we're so limited in our view of lust. The word lust in the Bible isn't just about uh, porn or sexual immorality. Uh, lust is a general word. All it means is desire, and it can be used in a good way or a bad way. And lust can be, and we all have lust. Every single one of us has lust, and we struggle with lust. It's just, what are you lusting after? It's lusting over food, lusting over using your uh, credit card too much when you go shopping, lusting over things with your eyes, uh, lusting over sexuality and those kind of things. So lust is manifest in many different ways. But if there's an ongoing, unbridled, chronic pattern of acting out on lust, then you've got a problem on your hands. You've got a, a pattern of behavior, sinful behavior that's going to be really <clears throat> a trial for you to, that's going to impe- impeding your spiritual growth and undermining you and uh, really short-circuiting the process, maybe even hold you prisoner so that you can't grow the way God wants you to grow. These sinful patterns of behavior. Um, common sinful patterns of behavior and addictions include porn and all of its forms of sexual immorality, fornication, <clears throat> drinking, alcohol excessively. That can become a pattern of sinful behavior and even an addiction. Drugs of all kinds, even good medications that the doctor gives you, prescription drugs. You can become addicted in a detrimental way. Gluttony, pattern of behavior. Those of you who battle food and it's a war and maybe even your weight, you know what that's all about. Laziness can be an unbridled pattern of sinful behavior. Hoarding, 1 Timothy 3 talks about that, can become a sinful pattern of behavior. Your temper, you go from zero to 60 with rage by the smallest, littlest things. Your fuse is about this long. And it's become a pattern of behavior, your temper, anger. That can also lead to patterns of behavior of being violent. Uh, your mouth, cuss words could become a pattern of behavior. I can attest to this one because I grew up completely pagan. I don't think I even met a Christian until I was seven, 17 years old that I know of. So the schools I grew up in, my family, siblings, their friends, my friends, my entire closed environment was utterly pagan, completely foreign to the biblical ethic. And everybody's vocabulary was the same. Everybody had a foul mouth, including parents. 
And that's the way you talked. It was normal. Did it all the time. You could use one cuss word as all eight parts of speech. It was amazing. How do they do that? Well, when you grow up in that, it's ingrained in you. It's uh, formed by virtue of your environment. It's put on your DNA if you grow up in that environment. Every person born into this world is, we're not blank slates, we're sinful. We actually have a propensity to sin. And so the environment under which you are raised and the parents under which you are raised have great influence on how you're going to be uh, programmed, keeping in mind that you already have a propensity to sin. And if you're just in an utterly pagan, sinful environment, uh, you're going to be programmed quite deeply. Sin patterns are going to be ingrained. It'll be very difficult. It'll be in your hard drive and DNA the rest of your life. You're going to have a battle on your hands if you get saved later in life. Like me, I got saved at age 19. And already the damage had been done for the sin patterns that had been ingrained in me, my conscience, my vocabulary, my worldview, the modeling that I saw. I didn't see any godly modeling. Jesus was, one of the, Jesus was the greatest teacher there ever was. Not just because he spoke truth, but in terms of his methodology, he was the greatest teacher there ever was. And one of his techniques that was, made him so amazing was modeling. What would he say the first time? Follow me. Watch me. Jesus is doing stuff, staying stuff, and his apostles are looking over his shoulder. They're watching. What are they watching? His modeling. Lord, teach us how to pray. How? That's, that's modeling. This is how you do it. Jesus should not have prayed Matthew 6. He didn't need to because there he models that when you pray, you should ask the Father for the forgiveness of sin. That was not Jesus' prayer. Lord, teach us how to pray. Okay, this is how you pray. And he modeled it. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Forgive us our debts. What's he doing? He's modeling. So Jesus knew that Modeling was so instrumental, so foundational to teaching and ingraining and training the conscience and helping mold behaviors and patterns of behavior. And so as parents, I'm just telling you, one of the things you have to guard and be aware of is your modeling. What are you modeling to your children? What are they being exposed to? And there's a lot of testimonies about that when Christians grow up and they, yeah, I got this hang up with respect to this sin and you know, I don't want to be a, a psycho analyst, whatever, and not take responsibility for my sin, but I did grow up in a home like this where I saw this kind of ungodly modeling all the time, and I was trained to do it, and I couldn't shake it. And that, that's the testimony of Charles Stanley, one of the most famous American preachers who recently went to heaven, who after 30 years of marriage to his wife in an article in Christianity Today that you can pull up online on Google still to this day, and he says uh, basically one of the reasons... Uh, that his wife divorced him, was, and he wasn't blaming her. He was saying, yeah, I own a lot of that because I, I had some hang-ups, and I had bad habits that I was doing when I, in my younger life that I carried over into my marriage and even in my pastoral ministry. That was a, an amazing admission on his part. But it proves the point. What he was saying is he's got an unshakable pattern of sinful behavior uh, that he's had for quite a long time, and it had an impact on his sanctification and spiritual maturity. So, answer that question and take it seriously. Do I have any addictions? Um, 
Do I have any patterns of sinful behavior? I, I don't know if you have any addictions, but I can just tell you right now, every single one of us has patterns of sinful behavior just by virtue of being sinners. And you were raised, by the way, you were raised in a dysfunctional home. You know how people try to wave the white flag and say, I was raised in a dysfunctional home. It's like, no, well, we all were. And I'm a dad of a dysfunctional home. Thank you very much. But, well, why do we develop patterns of sinful behavior addictions? Well, it could be a couple I've already mentioned. It's the way you grew up in your environment. And I'm not just blaming it all on that, but it's definitely an influence. Uh, modeling, I already mentioned that. Especially when you grow up with no models whatsoever and all your modeling is evil. It's like Pastor Bob, when he came home from Mexico, he was talking about the influence that these orphans on the street there in Mexico, when they are subjected and exposed to violence at a young age of five, six, seven, three, four, five years old, the, how impressionable they are, they can't shake that. They act that out, and then they become violent at age 10, 11, 12, 13. It's like we have the, what was it, the six-year-old that shot a teacher two weeks ago or a couple months ago here on the news? How does a six-year-old who has a gun, and then he talks about it before he does it, and after he does it, he's talking about it and bragging. A six-year-old. Well, that came from modeling. Uh, also, you need to consider your personality, your constitution. Maybe you have a chronic pattern of sinful behavior, and it's called anxiety or worry or depression. Wait, what, what did you just say, Pastor Cliff? Okay, I'll say it again. Maybe your chronic sinful pattern of behavior is ongoing anxiety, fear, and worry and depression. That's a sinful pattern of behavior. The Bible says, do not worry. Jesus said it three times in Matthew 6. Do not worry, do not worry, do not worry. And then he talks about, well, what are we not supposed to be worrying about? The basics of life. Literally the Greek, stop worrying, stop worrying. And when God says that, that is a command. When we violate it, that is sin. Concern is not a sin. Worrying illegitimately, anxiety by not trusting God and having fear and not resting in the promises of God, knowingly that is a sin. Well, how is worry, anxiety, angst, ongoing fear a pattern of sin, Pastor Cliff? Well, the pattern is wrong thinking. That's the problem. You have allowed yourself over time for a long period of time in a repeated manner, one thought after the next, until you have thoroughly ingrained the wrong lanes to drive in regarding your thinking. So somebody who struggles with the ongoing chronic pattern of anxiety, uh, new, new crevices, new roads, new tracks need to be trenched out for them, and they need to be retrained, and they need to learn how to new, do new habits of thinking. Worry is actually habitually wrong thinking. It is a pattern of behavior. That's Paul's whole point in Philippians 4 as he uses the present tenses with imperatives. So, uh, could be your, your personality. Be aware of that. Some people are prone to anxiety more than others based on their constitution. I'm not blaming it on that, but you have a propensity that way by virtue of your personality. Um, whether you're an introvert, extrovert, those lend themselves to certain kinds of sins. We all have a sin nature, and sin is going to manifest itself, and sin is going to just force itself out of your life somehow, and it will use your constitution, your personality, your propensities to do it. And that's why you end up the way that you are. 
Sin's going to rear its ugly head. Uh, closely related to personality and your personal constitution are the predispositions that you're born with. We all have a sinful nature, but we do have different predispositions. Some people, uh, is, are, people are homosexuals born homosexual? No, they are not. But are people who end up in that lifestyle born with a predisposition towards that bent? Absolutely. Same with being an alcoholic or a drug addict or whatever your vice is. Because we're all born with an evil, wicked sin nature. And like I said, it's going to manifest itself and it's going to take the path of least resistance in your life based on uh, what you're like as a fallen person. That's why when uh, people I've talked to counseled friends of mine who struggled with homosexuality or lesbianism, got saved, came out of that lifestyle, didn't just disappear, the wrong desires. For some of them, it's an ongoing war in the soul. But they're trying to pursue holiness with the help of God. Alcoholics are people who struggle with alcohol. Same way, they have a, there are just people who have a disposition towards drinking too much and they can't control their alcohol and they know it's a temptation, I can't go there, otherwise I will succumb. And some people have no problem whatsoever and are never tempted by alcohol. And that's what I'm talking about, this disposition. And we all have it. We actually all have several manifestations of it. So you, you need to be aware, uh, to deal with this roadblock, you need to know yourself. Know thyself, said the philosopher. He got that from the Bible. Uh, and then I talked about exposure early on, the influential years when young children are exposed to violence prematurely. That Psalm, uh, Song of Psalms talks about that in verse two and, or chapter 2 and chapter 3 where it warns uh, that you are not to be exposed too soon or too young of an age to sexual pleasure. Because it will pollute you. It will distort and pervert your thinking. And this beautiful gift that God has given uh, by having it exploited at too young of an age. We're all made in the image of God and we're also created as sexual beings. But that is not supposed to be coming to fruition and maturity until later in life. In keeping with when God's uh, put in your body hormones and the development of your body which comes later in life. But when young children are exposed to all kinds of sexuality, uh, that's dangerous. That is destructive. Children should be shielded from that and protected. But in our society today, just the opposite is happening. Exposure to TV, music, video, internet, of all kinds of sinful behaviors. Uh, that feeds our patterns of sinful behavior, habits why developed young, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, just be aware of that. Uh, i got some Bible verses down there uh, regarding addictions and patterns of behavior and one two three four in the five verses i put there uh, the common theme is there if you are a christian who struggles with an addiction i i believe there are christians who have serious addictions because i counsel these people i counsel christians who have addictions to drugs heroin alcohol and it's it's sad because you know the the depth of the battle that they're in because when they're sober and they're in a meeting with you and they're repentant and they have clear thinking, you know that they are sincere. And yet, you know, when they walk out the door, they become vulnerable without accountability and help. And a lot of them don't have hope. But they're truly Christians. So the common denominator to all the five verses I 
put down there's a couple of common denominators. Number one, it does recognize there are distinctions among Christians. Some are called weak Christians. They're weak. They're weak in their constitution. They're weak in their thinking. They're weak in, by virtue of their ability to resist sin because of patterns of behavior. There's a weak church in the New Testament. It's called the Corinthians. They were carnal. They grew up in an evil, wicked, pagan, immoral environment, and as a result, they had major hangovers of sinful patterns of behavior and sexual addictions and every other conceivable. Drunkenness? You talk about addiction. They are coming to communion drunk, and Paul has to address it. He didn't say, you're not Christians. You came to communion drunk. He's like, no, you believed in the gospel. I pastored you for a year and a half. I believe you're saved. Why in the world did you come to communion intoxicated? Don't do that anymore, and here's how to avoid it. So, we got to realize that there, there's a distinction among Christians. Your strength may be somebody else's pattern of sinful behavior. Your strength or maturity in a specific area might be somebody else's addiction. Somebody else's strength might be your addiction or your pattern of sinful behavior. So we need to make these distinctions. Uh, we've got all these verses talking about how we need to help fellow believers in their weak areas. Romans 15.1. This is a new one there. Romans 15.1. We who are strong... And what Paul means here, us Christians who are strong in any one given area ought to bear the weakness of the one without strength. And it doesn't mean they're the Christian who's weak in every area of their life. It's you who are strong in a certain area. You don't have a problem with alcohol. You're not tempted by it. You don't have a weak conscience there. You're strong there. You need to help uh, the brother over here who's weak in that area of addiction. Or maybe you don't... uh, have the battle with sexual immorality the way that another brother does. You need to help him. So two things. We need to admit and recognize these addictions and patterns of behavior. And then number two, every one of these six verses now of the solution here is that you can only get help from other people. or The only way you can deal with it, manage it, and even overcome it is get help from other Christians. You can't fight sinful addiction and patterns of behavior on your own. You can't do it. Failure every time guaranteed. And for many of these sinful patterns of behavior and addictions, it's ongoing regular accountability and help. So how do you deal with those things in your life? Uh, First of all, you confess it to God. Confess it to God, Proverbs 28, 13. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes will find compassion. And it starts with God. God First you confess the sin, and then God, help me. Help me with this lifelong pattern of addiction and sin. I can't overcome it. And you keep praying that on a regular basis. Holy Spirit, stir up your power within me. And here's a prayer. God, help me to hate this sin. To despise it in my gut. To have no appetite for it whatsoever. God will answer that prayer in time. So praying to God, confessing sin, uh, as modeled here, getting help from other Christians, you can't do it on your own. Can't do it. And then, and then you've got to create new habits. That's Paul in Colossians and Ephesians. Put off, put on. Put off. You can't just through willpower say, I'm going to stop doing this. Every time I do it, I'm going to smack myself with a rubber band. Ouch! No. That's legalism, superficial. That doesn't work. You create new patterns of behavior. You put off the old pattern that's sinful, and then you create something in its place. Those, who, those of you who steal, steal no more. And then Paul says, give to others. If you're a thief, 
Stop stealing, but be generous and give. So it's put off, put on. Addictions. Three. Uh, impediment number three is satanic temptation and oppression. Satanic or demonic temptation and oppression. I want to grow. I want to become mature. I want to be sanctified. I want to make progress in the Christian life. I want to live a holy life. How often, Christian, do you actually think about the reality of Satan? Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, because I just want to read verses 1 and 2. In addition to the verses I have here, um, 1 Peter 5, 8, be on the alert. Wake up. Wake up. Christian, your adversary, your enemy, your enemy, very personal. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. There was a survey I heard this week. Uh, of those who were polled, how many of you believe in God or deity? And it was over 95%. How many of you believe in the devil? It was less than 10%. So Satan is real. He's a real person. He is invisible. He is powerful. He's completely evil and wicked. He's irredeemable. He's incorrigible. He hates you. He knows you. He knows your family. He can't possess you if you're a Christian, but he can harass you and tempt you. And his demons. He controls the fallen world, the world in which we live, that we walk around in. That's going to be number four. So Satan is real. That's why Jesus said, when you pray every day, Christian, pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. And then at the very end, deliver us from the evil one. That's literally what it says. Deliver us from the evil one, Satan, and his demons and his tactics. So not only do you have to consciously be thinking about the reality of Satan. I mean, that's a question that I like to ask Periodic. When was the last time you thought literally about Satan and what he was up to in your life? Well, I'm having problems in my marriage. Can't blame it on Satan, but it's a good question. I wonder how he's trying to attack, destroy, and undermine my marriage. Well, he is. Or about your children that you're raising. What is he up to? Well, I guarantee he's up to something. Deliver us from the evil one. Just read Job chapter 1. Uh, there's Satan somehow got before the throne of God and he's pleading with God. Let me have power against your servant Job. And God says, okay. Satan is still doing that. Revelation 12, it's an interesting word. Categoria, category, category. Satan the accuser. In the English, it's the accuser. Present tense. What does Satan do? Continuing forever, he's always accusing. That's what uh, Satan was doing about Job to God. He was accusing Job's character before God. And Satan is the accuser. He does it all the time. He does it about you to Jesus. He actually does it to God the Father. He's accusing you. Oh, did you see that? Oh, there's another sin. Oh, there's that chronic sinful behavior. He's the accuser. Zechariah 3, same thing. Satan is accusing sinful believers. Well, he's got a case. He's got data. There's merit there. He's the accuser. You know what to accuse somebody is? It's to put them in a box. To put them in a box. Put a label on them. To be boxed in. To to pigeonhole somebody. Which disregards all these other realities that are wonderful and beautiful in their life. That's why I don't like to be boxed in or accused and categorized. Are you a dispensationalist? I hate that question. Are you a Calvinist? That's a box. I don't want that box. I feel claustrophobic when you do that. Because there's so much more that you need to be aware of instead of a label or a box. That's what Satan does. 
put you in a little box, you're a sinner, you're guilty, you sin all the time, and say, yeah, <laughs> that's true. But then there's the great high priest, Jesus, who's more powerful than Satan, who died for you. What is he? And the Holy Spirit, who's your advocate, he's your lawyer. So there's Satan, who's like a prosecutor, and then you've got, there's, the Holy Spirit is literally your lawyer, representing you. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He has all the facts. He doesn't distort the truth. He always wins his case 100% of the time. And Jesus has the same job as the high priest representing you before the Father. Yes, he is a sinner. It's pathetic. Yes, he does it all the time. Yes, he does this at home. That is true, your honor. But I died for those sins, and I have risen from the dead, and he is clean and white as snow. Amen. Satan. Ephesians 2, listen to this. This is the world in which we live. And you were dead, past tense, when you were an unbeliever, in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1. You used to be spiritually dead, in which you formerly walked according to the, here's the key phrases, according to the course of this world, this fallen world, according to the prince of the power of the air, Satan. Satan runs this world. He runs the whole system. He runs the ideologies of the world. He runs, he dictates the spirit of the age, the zeitgeist, the Germans would call it. The spirit of the age. That's the, the predominating uh, worldview that overhangs and dictates and informs everything that you see that the world believes that doesn't know God in utter resistance to the Christian worldview. And every age, every country, every era in world history has a spirit of the age, a zeitgeist. What is the spirit of the age today if you had to do bullet points? What is it? What are these godless, satanically inspired ideologies that constitute the spirit of the age that we have to resist and that we're warring against today. I would say wokeness makes the list. That's a satanic ideology. What else? Environmentalism. Not caring for the environment. That's in the Bible. Environmentalism, the religion, and everything that goes with it that's a lie, like the world's going to be destroyed through global warming. Uh, fluidity of gender. It's the spirit of the age. Entire nations are codifying that into their laws. It's horrific. Neo-Marxism today, known as class warfare, and it's manifest in all kinds of different ways. Black Lives Matter and feminism and white privilege. And it's, it's pitting classes of people against one another. It's evil. Probably the three most common ideologies that have constituted the spirit of the age all throughout human history and since Genesis 3 would be humanism. That's where man puts self before God in terms of thinking and determining everything. Humanism. Materialism. All that matters really is the here and now, not the next life. And immorality. Sexual immorality. Those three dominate in any hist uh, era in human history. And it's true today. And it manifests itself in many different ways at different times. Uh, so... Pray against the devil. Be aware of the devil. Number four, resist the devil. Uh, the fallen world is your enemy. The fallen world, that's just inescapable. You live in the fallen world. We all do. We wake up, we live in a fallen world. And you need to understand the impact of the fallen world. So, some tragedy happens. Oh, there's fires in Maui. Why are there fires in Maui? Well, I don't know. Somebody started it or whatever, and there's things that were neglected. But the fact is, there have been fires in the world since Genesis 3 because we live in a, fire, uh, a fallen world. There's hurricanes in Florida because we live in a fallen world. There's earthquakes in California because we live in a fallen world. That's in the Bible. That's not a mystery. It's not difficult. It's easy to understand. If you just believe the Bible. The problem is, 
Uh, a lot of people, well, the world doesn't believe in Genesis 1 through 3 literally, and there's a large percentage of Christians that don't believe in a literal Genesis 1 through 3, and that's a problem because then they don't know how to deal with tragedies in the world or death. We live in a fallen world, uh, and it's terrible from these grand trials that I just mentioned to smaller things that irritate us, and sometimes we use excuses to be sinful in our behavior and have a lack of patience, like your furniture gets old and it irritates you, and you lose your sanctification. <laughs> your car breaks down. Have you ever had your car break down on the highway at a very inconvenient hour and you lost your sanctification? I have. Why do cars break down? Well, because we live in a fallen world. The wear and tear, it's just wear and tear. Thermo, the law of, second law of thermodynamics. That happens on a physical realm, but there's a spiritual second law of thermodynamics. It's in the Bible. The world that has already fallen is becoming worse and worse with time. Paul talks explicitly about that in Timothy, where evil men will grow wax or will wax and grow worse and worse with time. And I used to say, well, it's not getting any worse today. I mean, people are just as bad today. As, people were just as bad 2,000 years ago as they are today, which is true in terms on an individual level. But I have rethought that. I need to redact that statement and update my new thinking. I actually think uh, the world is more sinful today than it was 2,000 years ago in light of the ongoing exponential increase of sinners born into this world. Today's population, there are 8 billion people. When I was in grade school, there were 4, 3 billion people. When I was a Christian, when I first got saved, there were 4 billion people. So since I've been saved, we've gone, and the world was horrible when I got saved, when there were 4 billion people, and Jesus said, few there be that find it. Most people, the supermajority of the world, are going to be unbelievers who hate God and his truth. So Christian, you're in the minority, you're in the super minority, you're swimming upstream. So the, the very small minority of Christians, when I got saved with 4 billion people on earth, and now there's 8 billion people. So exponentially, the world is being overcome by people who hate God. And that will just continue to increase. So mark your calendar, check it out in 10 years, and see what the world population is when there's 12 billion people on the earth. Most of them hate God. And then if you live to be another 40 years, when it's 17 billion people or 20 billion, whoa, that's getting bad. That's why you can take the book of Revelation literally because it's talking about the future when the world is just utterly dominated by an entirely evil, wicked system. So that's the fallen world in which we live. And then number five, uh, an impediment to your sanctification are other sinners, and here's the key, including fellow Christians. That might be a little surprising, but when you think about it, no, that's not. Are other Christians an impediment or roadblock to my holiness, my sanctification? Yeah. Just read the book of Corinthians, and you've got fellow believers fighting. That's what the whole book is about. Paul, Paul writes them and says, quit fighting. It's interesting. He commends them at the beginning of the, the epistle. I am so glad that you accepted the gospel and came to believe in Jesus and love the Jesus. Stop fighting. That's 1 Corinthians in a nutshell. Other sinners, including fellow Christians. If you're married, that includes your spouse. Oh, how you liked each other and loved each other so much when you're dating. And then you get married. Uh-oh. 
Houston, we have a problem. You know that book? Uh, it's pretty well known, When Sinners Say I Do. I love the title. I haven't read the book. I just I don't need to read the book. <laughs> it's a book to prepare Christians for marriage. When Sinners Say I Do. Boom! Says it all. So in light of that, you got those last two verses there, Job 2, 9, and 1 Peter 3. My point here is that you cannot use your spouse as an excuse for your sinful behavior. That's the point. Meaning, oh, I'm not acting sanctified, or I'm, I'm acting very unholy. It's my spouse's fault. And anybody that does biblical counseling, we, we deal with that all the time. So... Just so you know, I'm not talking about you. When I say, when I do biblical counseling, usually family counseling or marriage counseling, it's two people pointing fingers at each other. Yeah, I did this, but you did this first. Or yeah, I did this, but you deserved it. It's like, whoa, and these are Christians talking. Bottom line, uh, you can't blame your sin or lack of sanctification on something that your Christian spouse does or doesn't do. That is completely unbiblical. That is wrong. That's Adam and Eve when God confronts them in the beginning. Eve, why'd you do this? Oh, the devil made me do it. Adam, why'd you do this? Well, the woman, the woman, the woman, my wife, that you gave me, God. He's blaming two people. So, no. I mean, those of you who are parents and now have children, those of you who are parents and have a multiplicity of children, all the more, huh, I, used to, I didn't used to have pay, uh, impatience. I didn't lack patience until I got married and had kids. It's amazing how that sin just kind of... You have one kid and you lose your patience. You have two kids and then you lose even more patience. And then you have four kids. It's like, what am I thinking? Why did I have four kids? And then you got all kinds of impatience going on. Lack of sanctification. You can't blame it on your kids. But we do. Another way that um, the lack of sanctification that we try to blame on others is when, say, you got two Christians, they get married, and they're a bad influence on one another. However, you know, they got a bad habit, and then you adopt their bad habit, and then you reinforce and accept their bad habit, and they get worse, and then you've adopted their bad habit you didn't used to have. Christians do that all the time, married couples. So we're supposed to be iron sharpens iron, and making each other sharper, not dragging each other down by uh, succumbing them to our bad habit. So be aware of that in your own marriage. Uh, yeah, I used to be an early bird, but now I, I never go to Sunday school because uh, our family sleeps in. Why? Because my spouse likes to sleep in and can't get out of bed, so we all do that. So I don't go to Sunday school. Really? Wow. One example. There are many more. And then number six, finally. This is the key to everything, and we'll talk about this next week. Uh, wrong thinking. Wrong thinking. Wrong thinking is probably the biggest roadblock to us growing in spiritual maturity and sanctification. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, too, do not be conformed. Literally, do not put yourself in a position to be conformed or to copy the ways of this world. Do not put yourself in a position to be conformed to the artificial scheme or mold of sinful things in this world. Don't put yourself in that position. Well, I struggle with alcohol and drinking. Oh, okay, well, tell me more. Yeah, and every day I walk by the alcohol store as I'm going to work. Well, don't walk by the drugstore anymore. Go another way. Don't put yourself in that position. That's what he's saying. 
uh, do not be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed, and that has about the inside, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. There it is. So, and then he goes on in verse, second part of 2 and verse 3 is, and also in verse 1, live godly. Well, how do you do that in this fallen wicked world? Well, the key is your mind. It's the battle of the mind. Be transformed, not in your behavior, by slapping the rubber band on your wrist. You be, you're changed, literally, by your thinking, by your mind. Uh, what kind of thinking? In keeping with the phrase, the will of God. The will of God comes from only one place. It is the Bible. We have to renew our mind with God's truth continually. That's the only way. And we'll talk more about that next week. So there's your six roadblocks or impediments to be aware of. Know your enemy. And that will help you plan accordingly, strategize, seek the proper help, and with God's grace, make some progress in your Christian life, living it in a way that pleases our God. Let's go to the Father and pray and ask for his help. And thank him for our time together. Father, we do thank you for our time together and the opportunity to look to your word. Astounding that you have preserved uh, the truth of your word in scripture in the New Testament for 2,000 years and the Old Testament, some of it over 3,000 years. Revealing your very thoughts, your expectations, your will for us and then the promises Salvation in Christ, the indwelling Holy Spirit who helps us as our lawyer, our advocate, and even empowers us with his supernatural strength that resides within us. God, keep these verses, these truths fresh in our mind today throughout the week that we meditate on them. You keep bringing them back to our memory. We know that thinking is the key, thinking on truth. Jesus, you said it, know the truth. And the truth will set you free, and it's the truth of God. So help us to that end, Lord. We thank you for ongoing forgiveness that we have in the risen Savior. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.